Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 99 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is election day, Tuesday morning, November 6, 2018. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Remember, remember the 6th of November. <laughs> I was thinking a re-election day, going to go for some Duran Duran. Yeah, that works. I was I was thinking about Amy Gardner from the West Wing. Uh, every two years we get to overthrow the government. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, uh, predictions. Let's open with some predictions. Uh, first, what's your prediction on Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke? I mean, I, every single person I know tells me that, that, that the Democrats in Texas statewide elections always hope for too much. So I, I think it, my gut reaction is, is Ted Cruz squeaks by, and as part of that, the Republicans hold the Senate. But I don't think it will surprise our listeners to, to know that I'm, I'm rooting for the opposite result. I think you're right that uh, that you know it's been a long time since a Democrat won any statewide election in uh, Texas, and the if the bases both turn out, then there's a bigger base uh, here for for Ted Cruz, and there's a lot of straight ticket voting, at least one more election. So I think probably squeaks by, but um, it's certainly never been close like this before, not not in recent uh, elections. And, and I do think, I mean, I my, I, I will predict. I, I do think the Dems are going to pick up a handful of House seats in Texas. Um, as part of what I also predict is going to be a Democratic takeover of the House. You know, I don't know whether it's a, a huge sweep or whether it's just a narrow, you know, the Dems just get past 218. I don't know. But I, I feel like, you know, it seems like we're heading in that direction. I think that's right. Uh, any other races you're following around the country? Uh, Georgia gubernatorial. Right. Everybody's following that. I, I mean, the shamelessness with which Brian Kemp, I, we really ought to have a federal law that bans um, state secretaries of state or whoever is in charge of supervising elections from participating in supervising election, which oh, they're running for state. That just office. seems like you know basic blocking and tackling of good government. Because, that, you know, that ought to be the rule. Whether, whatever you think of Brian Kemp, whenever you think of Chris Kobach, right? The 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 specter, the appearance no, of the yeah. fact that they're no, both basically calling the shots in elections in which they are the odd, the one side's candidate. Right now, you should have to recuse from that day job. Kind of like Banana Republic stuff. Yeah, um, so we'll see what happens do there. You, what, do you have any big predictions? No, I think you're right. I mean, no, I think that's just like what you said. I, I suspect, like I think on, on Beto, which is, you know, everybody's so fascinated by this race because he is in many ways so fascinating. In a way, he's already won, right? Because I think that uh, if he, this, as I put it to somebody the other day, it's a little bit like Lincoln Douglas, right? He, he may not win the Senate seat. But he's already won a tremendous national reputation for himself yeah. that he, he had a little tiny bit of one um, yeah. before, but mostly not outside Texas. Now he's got a really big national reputation. I think he's somebody who's going to now be in conversations for larger things. And if control of the Senate comes down to Texas, I actually think that's in the in the main a good sign for Democrats. A um, few other things I'm watching. Um, our mutual friend Sam Bagenstos is running for Michigan Supreme Court Justice. Is he? Oh, I didn't um, know so that. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be watching that ca- carefully. Um, I am I am pulling very hard for JD Shulton in the Iowa Fourth to unseat. Um, oh, is that the, the Steve King opponent? A- anti-Semitic um, ass, you know what, Steve King. So I think a lot of people are pulling for that. Uh, uh, you know, sir. I'm trying to think if there are any other races. I guess we should move on. Uh, I think it'll be some fascinating TV watching tonight. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny. Two years ago on election night, I was Twitter actually um, I was in D.C. because I was working with CNN's election coverage team. So I was actually in like one of the control rooms for their election coverage, which is really cool. I bet that was fun. Um, f- until about ten o'clock at night, and then it started for you hor- not so fun. And then it started getting horrified. Yeah. Um, so. Um, well, I think t- this will probably be less dramatic, but it'll still be an interesting evening. We yep. uh, have some housekeeping for you guys. True. Uh, f- first of all. We are not running for anything. We're, you can't vote for us for anything. Although, I guess, you know, we've been in this podcast business for a while. There must be 
There's got to be things you could be nominated for. Yeah. Hey, listeners, if there's something we could be nominated for that's not an insult to us, worst, go for it. Worst Get us podcast. Out there. Nerdiest podcast. Nerdy. I'll take nerdiest. That's that. I, you know, I um, I I I had the privilege of of guest hosting first Mondays this week. Yes, she did. Um, and I mentioned at one point I, I listened to Golik and Wingo. Um, you know, the replacement for Mike and Mike in the morning. Oh, okay. Um, and and they they're fond of calling themselves the the pettiest show in America. So I, <laughs> you I, could be the nerdiest. Nerdy show. That'd be hard. There's some pretty nerdy shows out there, but we do our part. We do our part. All right. So if there's some kind of legal podcast Otherwise, award, get us good. out there. Um, but so episode 99, Bobby, that means, I think, if my math is right. If we don't have an emergency that screws it up, we're then gonna, our 100th. I, I think if we do, we're going to have to call it episode 99.5. Because like we've, we've oh, framed this yeah. whole thing as the 100th episode. How can we show up and be like, actually, 99, guys, I would we love there an episode to, yesterday. I would love there to be a 99.5 because my... my Favorite San Antonio rock and roll radio uh-huh. station, 99.5 KISS. Rock San Antonio. If you're from San Antonio, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, <laughs> episode 100. Episode 100 in Washington. We were both next caffeinated Wednesday. this morning. Yeah, we are. Um, we'll be live in Washington, D.C. for our first live podcast recording. We're so excited. This is Wednesday next week, the 14th, uh, 1215. 12-15. Bobby. 12.15 at American <laughs> University, Washington College of Law, Yuma Building, Room 401. Did I get That's that right? right? Yep, 4100 Yuma Street Northwest, the west side of Tenley Circle, the west side uh, escalator if you take the red line yeah. to the Tenley Town AU station, we all think, the above. We think there's room for about 100 people in the room. We have an Eventbrite uh, link on our Twitter feed. That is uh, an RSVP link, and last time we checked, it was nearly full. So Ooh. if you're planning to come, obviously those those RSVPs, you know, they're just, soft. They're soft D- numbers. DC RSVPs are always soft. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't checked the weather, but hopefully uh, you'll all turn out no matter what. And then separately, the T-shirt campaign—it went great. Those shirts presumably are being printed now by Custom Ink, and they should be shipping in about a week. Um, 233 shirts sold, and that doesn't matter. What matters is $3,440 raised for ALS Texas. Great job, y'all. So happy about that. Woo-hoo. Yep. All right. It is time for the deepest deep dive. dive. <laughs> wait, wait. I think I, I, think I queued wait, up. Wait, you got some, a sound effect? I, I think I have some sound effect. Let's see if I can actually open my phone. How's that? Does that even sound like a submarine? <laughs> so, um, you and I were in the same class when I was introduced to this app. Shame. Oh, yeah. Shame. <laughs> is, that the shame is that the shame on me for my poor uh, editorial skills? It here? is. Yeah. Well, that's actually more sound effects than we normally have. Seriously, but... that's two. That's two. All right. So, um, we promised you all that we were going to finish our deep, deep, deep dive into the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We got waylaid by one week of a whole lot of news and notes in national security land. That was episode 98. But today we're going to finish the the trilogy, Bobby, that began episode 96, continue through 97, finish in 99, leads me to ask you a trivia question. What is the only third part of a trilogy to ever win Best Picture Oscar? Well, it could not have been Godfather 3. was not Godfather 3. <laughs> now, Godfather 2 was the yeah, first, first sequel yeah, yeah. to win Best Picture. And if you, only, if you think of it as only a sequel, still to date, I think, the only sequel. But there's a third part of a trilogy that won Best Picture. Oh, man, this is a good one. Um, can you give me a hint? Uh, can I give you a hint? Um, it's, it is not a, it's not nonfiction. So it's fiction. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. It, it is uh, a. It is a special genre of fiction. All right. No, I don't have a clue. What is it? Um, I'll give you another clue. Viggo Mortensen. Viggo. Uh, 
Wait, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was Return of the King. Return of the King. That that one best picture. It was like it was, I think it was, it was like a thin a, year, huh? I think it was like a, okay, Peter Jackson. We get it, right? Like you this, made was, three this amazing is amazing. Movies. Yeah, like we'll give you one. Yeah, I I, I agree that the sort of the career achievement there and the sheer enjoyment of it, although. Well, I mean, it was Best Picture in 2003, so I guess we'll have to go back and look at, at all of the other movies that should have made it that year but didn't. Yeah, that's a good frivolity. We can, if we have time at the end, we can uh, kind of come back to that at yeah, some we, point. We'll dig that we up. But anyway, so, so <laughs> like Return of the King, here we are with the, the dramatic denouement of our FISA deep dive. So, so wait, wait, which, which part of the quest, are, which character from the quest are you? Are you, are you the king? I don't think I'm the king. I I feel more like Gandalf. I'm, I'm tall. Oh, you there know, you go. Um, Wizard-like I, in your knowledge. Thank you. I was going to say that I, you know, I, I sometimes walk slowly and have a weird gait. How about um, growing a beard? I've not seen you grow a beard. Um, that's true. Growing a beard for me is like a playoff thing, right? Like if I know I'm not like going to have to speak anywhere for a couple of weeks. And yeah. and the thing about when I grow a beard is is it's very gray. Yes, I, which I guess I, is Gandalf. I guess that's Gandalf like. Yeah, it is. Uh, Steve the Gray. Steve the Gray. <laughs> uh, but if I'm Gandalf, who are you? Um, are you are you Frodo? No, no, no. Because Frodo is a pretty disappointing character. You know, <laughs> I don't want to associate myself with somebody who gets We're gets get to that tail. moment of truth and, and completely gets overcome by the ring. Sam, are you Sam? The wise friend. The wise I think friend. I think I play that role here. I'm your like your trusted. <laughs> but wait, but that makes me Frodo. Your trusted companion. Well, that's true. Yeah, Man, I'll just hang out with you. We're going to get such hate mail for for this discussion of, of Return of the King. All right, <laughs> it could have been so much worse. Let's go back to things we know. FISA. Where Fizo. were we? Okay, so episode 96 was the original deep dive episode here, and our aim there was to both set the context by describing the complexities of the Fourth Amendment backdrop and to set the categories of government activity that make this a complex area, such as the distinction or the asserted distinction between foreign intelligence gathering through electronic surveillance and criminal law investigation through electronic surveillance. And then, of course, we introduced uh, the way it all kind of blew up in the 1970s. We talked about the Keith case. We had the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, FISA. And then against that backdrop in episode 97, we picked up the story with uh, the rise and then fall of the so-called wall between criminal investigators and foreign intelligence investigations and the uh, emergence after 9-11 of the terrorist surveillance program, or uh, I guess what we might sum up as the uh, within the United States collection of communications coming in from abroad where, where there's a foreign target, but you're taking advantage of the home field advantage we've got with all the companies and their facilities here in circumstances that on its face clearly should have uh, required a FISA order because of the U.S.-based collection. Uh, but the government decided and was able to persuade companies to go along with uh, doing it with just on a cooperative basis with no court order. And we unpacked all the legal arguments and how this eventually uh, became untenable as a way of proceeding because it became public. And that's where we should probably pick up our story here in the deepest dive, episode 99, with the story of how the, the summer the, of 2007. The summer of 2007, the TSP, the Terrorist Surveillance Program, is in shambles. It's all been public. The companies cannot continue to cooperate. But the government's taken the position that this is non-negotiable. We've got to have this because the quality and the speed and efficiency, but the utility of the collection is such that this is a must-have, that sort of a lives-are-on-the-line kind of argument. Um they have to go to Congress. They, they can't get back that functionality, which they are losing um, because of the publicity and, and the resulting frictions. They have to get legislation to recreate it. And 
to sum up in brief, uh, first they get a temporary legislative gift. The, in the Protect f- America Act. Yeah, the PAA. It, it creates what is going to become Section 702, although I don't think it was numbered that at that time. No, it was actually, it was, um, believe it or not, it was. I think it was Section 105B, like capital B, right? What, it was very oh, confusing. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. Um, but also, I mean, so I, I, there were some important differences. There were a couple ways in which the PAA was actually Bobby Broader, but I think because everyone understood it was temporary, yeah, we'll, we're just, not, we'll, we'll lie yeah, those We'll let it go. So there was this moment, this thing happens, but really that was kicking the can down the road. The big battle came with the in- ultimate enactment in 2008 of the FISA Amendments Act, or the F. FAA. Now, the, the, let me let me kind of describe. So it has Section 702. Um, Can I just, be, just yeah, numbering? Just, yeah, to, yeah. just to un, people, I think people get confused a lot by how FISA is numbered. So um, 702, it, when you're talking about statutes, right, there are often two different numbers you'll hear. One is the public law section number. So when we're talking about FISA, 702 is Section 702 of FISA. So if you were just to look at a copy of FISA as amended, it's Section 702 of FISA. It's part of Title Seven. Exactly. Um, as opposed to the U.S. Code. Right, if you actually want to look it up online more conveniently. Right, it's actually 50 U.S.C. Section 1881A, no parentheses. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of, especially FISA, because there's so many section numbers. So people tend to refer to FISA much like immigration law. The folks on the inside tend to use the public law numbers, whereas the folks on the outside who aren't you know, used to talking in those terms tend to use the code provisions, and oftentimes they're actually saying the exact same thing. Yeah, that, that actually is a recurring issue. I was talking about that in class in cybersecurity the other day. It's a, it's a hassle, but our dear listeners will we'll spare you by only referring to 702 because for this one, the, the very idea of that number has become sort of iconic and deeply identified with this authority. And, and, and same with the business records provision in 215. I, mean, I don't think, I don't yep, think that many exactly. folks know the 215 is actually, you know, when it was codified, it was codified at 50 USC section 1861. Right, and, and the 215 number, is that the... FISA as amended number, or is that the USA Patriot Act section number even? Uh, oh, indeed. I'm right. sorry. Bobby, see? So, so there you go. Hey, got just, one. Right. It's 215 of the USA Patriot Act. Hey, that, that's what you know, Sam Wise uh, is here for. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> All right. Okay, so here's how it works at a high altitude. And bear with me, because this one's pretty easy for people to get the wrong idea about the precise details. It's actually not too complicated, but we're going we're gonna to talk about it at a high enough level you say of generality. That now. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. All right, so the fundamental idea is you have a target who must be someone you reasonably believe to be a non-U.S. person, a non-U.S. person, who you also reasonably believe to be outside the United States as a physical location matter, and you've got a foreign intelligence purpose in wanting to collect that person's communications. The idea is that that's the, that's the goal you want to get to, where when you have such non-U.S. person overseas targets, you're able in some fashion to get compelled cooperation from U.S.-based communication service providers of various kinds so that they will turn over and, and assist in that respect with surveilling the communications. What actually happens to get the approval to do that, to get the FISA court to empower the government to make those private American companies to comply, works like this. The Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence have to jointly uh, supervise and sign off on the creation of procedures, administrative and technical sets of procedures through which those determinations that your target is in fact a non-U.S. person, that the target is in fact overseas, that there is a proper foreign intelligence purpose, and by the way, also that you will adopt and comply and administer so-called minimization procedures that that control and regulate and cabin the ability to 
to, uh, to query, disseminate, and share and retain the resulting information, especially when it comes to any U.S. person communications that get caught up in this mess. Um, all of those procedures can be documented and explained. And so the goal or the idea is DNI and AG, the Director of National Intelligence and Attorney General, they make a joint application to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court on a once-a-year basis to certify that all of that sum total of process passes muster, right? And who and, and the process, Bobby, who is this directed toward? Is it directed toward the target? Well, no. So this is all just, we're not yet at the point of talking about any individual target. We're talking about going in as a matter of representing how you run your business on this one area and saying, this is how it's organized. Here's how it works technically. Here's what we do. Here's who signs off on what. Here's what the safeguards and the oversights are. Do you think this is good enough to keep us properly focused and minimized on the scenario we're supposed to be focused on? If the FISA court agrees, then on a once a year basis, it effectively empowers the government to to then turn around and issue what are known as directives. The directive is something that the government then sends to each individual private company saying, we've got the certification from the FISA court approving that we've got a good process. And pursuant to that process, here is a list of selectors, that is telephone numbers, email addresses, in other words, uh, the account identifiers um, for communications accounts, the to from information you'd need. Here are the selectors we believe are associated with foreign, non-U.S. persons located overseas using all these procedures, and you are obligated under 702 now to cooperate with us. Now, there's two species of this. One species is called PRISM. With PRISM, you want to imagine something like Google, which operates Gmail or Gchat. In other words, a a communications platform that may have some qualifying non-U.S. person who uses their services, and the government, once it gets the proper certification, can come to Google with a directive and say, all right, here's a list of, of Gmail users. We want to monitor their communications. You've got to cooperate with us, and 702 empowers that. Um, that's PRISM. The communication service provider itself is in the U.S., and they can be made subject to this authority. Not every non-U.S. person is going to use a U.S.-based communication service provider. There are going to be other companies, say some company headquartered in Pakistan that's not subject to 702 compulsory authority. Um, there's another way you might still get some of their communications because their communications, though not running through and administered by some you know, email provider based in the U.S., nonetheless is going to travel the Internet. And the internet backbone is going to be administered by a number of companies that are in the U.S. So AT&T, you can go to them as an internet backbone provider, and you can send a directive to them. And this is called Upstream. And the Upstream directive says, hey, filter your traffic looking for communications to or from one of these selectors. And then in a move that you don't see with Prism, that is where it's the Gmail type scenario, but you do see with these backbone surveillance upstream filters, uh, you can also, or at least historically you could, you could also search for situations where it's not to or from that foreign person selector, but that person selector appears somewhere in the text. It's in the, it's in the subject line, it's in the text of the message, and we call that about collection. Okay, so that's basically the 702 idea in a nutshell. Can I can I add one, uh, two pieces of I think friendly friendly additions to your yeah, to your absolutely. summary? So the first is it's important to understand that as a matter of technological constraint, when a lot of this collection was happening through the early to mid part of this decade, oftentimes Bobby these packets would come in what were known as MCTs, right, multi communications transactions, so that you actually had 
inevitably the government collecting far more information than even the government, I think, would concede it was actually trying to obtain. So this happens with upstream where you're doing about collection. And the idea would be, let's say uh, you log into your computer, you turn to your screen and you say, I'm going to check my Gmail account real quick. So you open a browser, you contact the the server, the server sends in your inbox. That that transmission there, you're going to have all these emails listed there, one of which might be an email that is sent from a properly identified foreign target of right. 702 collection. But the screenshot, it's got all of these references in there. And including lots of U.S. person to U.S. person communication within the United States. Right. And so you've got you've got the MCT scenario, with which is a form of, of, of what was technologically unavoidable, but clearly right. over collection. No, no, right. And then you've got incidental collection of other kinds where, you know, the the Properly identified foreign target is communicating with a cousin about, you know, how the cousins are yeah. doing. So, so so big point number one is just that at least based on what we understand to be current technological capabilities, it was unavoidable that if you're going to have this mode of collection, you're going to collect a whole lot of stuff that you didn't need. Right, right. And so that's specific to the about scenario. Yeah. To, to from was obviously more, more focused. With, with, with Prism, it is inherently quite focused because yep. you're going saying, look, I want, you've got this account right, user. But, but to from upstream, I think you can still have at least some incidental collection. Uh, right. Well, you, you definitely have incidental or over collection in the sense that there are going to be some, some communications that are, in fact, innocuous. Right. Okay. Right? And a lot of those are going to involve U.S. persons. So, and the reason why I say this is because when it comes time to talk about the legal objections to 702, right, I actually think a lot of it lives in this incidental collection window. Absolutely. And um, so there, there's, let's flag all the different issues. There's that set of issues. Right. So we, we might begin by saying uh, what the key issues are. And here's, here's a shot at enumerating some of the big ones. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm sure you'll find some desire to talk about whether or not this is a proper judicial role for the FIS. Oh, that was going to be my second point. Okay. Gonna, my, my second friendly amendment was going to be, and note how we've changed the role of the FIS. But we can say that. So let me, let me briefly put that on the table, and yeah. then we'll pivot back to that as the sort of lead-in to well, all let, the let's, dr- let's drill down on that one while right. we're on it. So let's so, do the whole so, thing. Um, as, as Bobby helpfully explained, the way a directive application works, it is wholly ex parte. Um, and unlike what was true of original classic 1978 FISA, um, there's no ancillary criminal proceeding pursuant to which the government's obtaining anything that remotely resembles a search warrant. Um, So the question that arises is whether that kind of proceeding is therefore insufficiently adverse to satisfy the case or controversy requirement of Article 3, whether what the FISA court is basically doing when it's approving, or were they ever to do it, rejecting directives, um, is actually a form of administrative review, not judicial review. So the idea would be that it's it's a perfectly good function to have some other entity further checking the homework, et cetera, but why not keep it within the executive branch of right. some what's other the, agency? What's the case or controversy? What's the judicialness and that makes to, it proper and for to judges remind, to And to go it. back to deep dive part one, when we talked about this issue in the context of original FISA, um, the answer as, as OLC testified um, at the time the sort of the original statute was enacted. By the way, I think I keep calling him Mark Harmon. It's, Mark Harmon's the actor. It's John Harmon. Uh, um, uh. Right. But the answer at the time was because a warrant is ancillary to a subsequent criminal proceeding. And so just like an ordinary search warrant in an ordinary case, um, right, there's the, the adverseness comes from the broader sort of context in which the proceeding arises. That doesn't hold here. Um, now, the 702 wasn't the first time Congress had done this. I mean, when we get to 215 in the business records provision, that was similar 
similarly divorced from the warrant model, right? Why aren't they all justifiable exactly the same way that the original FISA order models justifiable? Uh, that is, there is some prospect, however distant, yeah. that the fruits of any of these collection models, original FISA right. 702 collection or 215 collection, ultimately might get introduced at a criminal trial, and then there could be a so, there could be so, testing. So let me give you let me give you why I think it doesn't work, and let's pivot to what I think the better defense is, right? So I think it doesn't work because in the context of original FISA, it's clear at the time of the application who the adverse party is, right? The adverse party uh. is the target of the warrant. And so when the government goes to the FISA court and asks for a FISA warrant against Steve Vladek, um, the dispute is already an adverse dispute between the United States and Steve Vladek. So it's, ex, not a party so it's to it ex parte, yet. yet, but nonetheless still clearly identifiable Adverse. between parties. Right. Whereas in the context of at least 702, and I think you can say the same thing about the business records provision, not at all clear who the subject of the criminal proceeding would be. Now, someone— I, I, So wait, I, I totally agree as to 702 because as right. I described it, it's, it's, yeah. it's looking at your process. It's like having McKinsey and company come yeah, in and yeah. vet whether you've got a good process. Whereas uh, two fifteen though you do you do have a target or at least before bulk metadata but you, you don't, had a target but you don't but you don't necessarily have to disclose to the FISA court who the target is right the FISA court is approving the request for a business record based on your search, based on the government's proffer that the record is relevant to an ongoing investigation right. without necessarily right. identifying who they're trying so to we'll find So we'll have to come on. back to two fifteen right. and how that gets so, complicated. So uh, I think the, the the alternative argument and I think this is messy. Um, someone was clearly thinking about this because, like the Protect America Act, 702 does provide a mechanism for adverseness, um, wherein the recipient of the directive is expressly authorized under the statute to contest the directive before the FISA court. And for the first time, well, the second time, because the same thing was true under 215, but right, that, that um, the statute now creates a provision okay. for adverse proceedings between the government and not the target, but the recipient of the directive. The problem is that the adverseness is voluntary, um, right? That the recipient of the directive has to choose um, to avail themselves of the right to, to appear. And even then, Bobby, I think, you know, I could I could argue, I don't think it's, I don't think we need to go down that rabbit hole, but I think it's, it's not hard to argue that in a, a communication service provider does not necessarily stand in the shoes of its customers when it comes to privacy rights. So it's at least better. There's a, there's a greater element of adversariality there than there used to be. But Is there's there, one problem. Yeah, what? No one ever showed up. So um, so we learned um, right, right about the time of the Snowden revelations in the summer of 2013, we learned that with the exception of Yahoo in what became uh, in-ray directives under the Protect America Act, not a single um, business under Section 215 or internet service provider, electronic, sorry, communication service provider under 702 had ever actually availed itself of the right to contest what was going on in the FISA court. So I actually think, as I wrote in an article a couple years ago, I think there's a serious Article Three problem with what the FISA court's doing under 702. And I think that's one of the issues that that can and eventually probably will be litigated um, in the context of 702. But as you say, Yahoo, so it's not that no one does. Right. Yahoo did, and they took, they took it all the way and, that, and that's what produced the second ever ruling by the FISA court of review in NRA directives, where the court rejected some of the arguments we're about to outline. Exactly. So let's pivot to those substantive arguments or, or critiques. There's a there's a question about, is this arrangement, actually, before we get into the Fourth Amendment critique, let me ask, do you know of any other circumstance where federal courts are asked to supervise or make a decision or determination that is that is like this 702 process where you review the description of process and say, yeah, that's good enough? Um, extradition. 
Extraditions like that? Yeah. So, so it, you, it, it's generally the case in extradition cases that all the federal court is, is reviewing mm-hmm. is the procedural sufficiency of the extradition warrant um, and the State Department's compliance therewith. Now, that gets complicated by the um, U.S.'s ratification of the Torture Convention and statutory implementation of the Torture so Convention. Right? Because that opens the door to at least one kind of substantive claim that can now be made, at least in some extradition cases. But that's the closest. And, you know, there's a long-running debate about whether extradition proceedings are judicial because of the nature of the review courts are, are, are conducting. Um, whatever side you come down on, right, those who say, yes, it's clearly judicial, rely on the fact that there's a clear adverse party to wit the extraditee. Right, right. So it's an interesting question. It's it's almost a question of whether you can see from a general sort of abstract policy perspective how it's it's nice to bring in life tenured independent federal judges to perform this further check. That that makes sense. I don't think anyone doubts the logic of right. that. The question is does do the the constraints of Article Three forbid judges from what might be described as moonlighting outside the judicial lane to right. perform that function? And, and indeed, doing something that really looks administrative. I mean, so so what this really looks like is you know a federal agency um, approving um, some you know private sector proposal uh, or right the federal agency signing off on some interaction between the federal government and the private sector like you, the FCC well like you can imagine a version of this in which the approval of the process and procedure is performed by OMB right. or something like that or somebody else and then the administrative process can be challenged by aggrieved persons Right under the APA, that's that's the normal. Well, way this and works. more importantly, it wouldn't actually buy you much mileage. And the reason why this authority is vested in the FISC is the idea that that's what gives it greater legitimacy. Right. It's independent Article Three federal judges, not other members of the same executive branch. And, and I and, and to to beat a dead horse, I'm going to beat for the next half an hour over and over again. Right, so much of how comfortable we are with that depends upon how much faith we have that the judges on the FISA court and the FISA court of review are actually, you know, accepting that they're in an unusual role and have maybe perhaps more of a responsibility than usual to be the arbiter, right, to actually to stand in the shoes of Vox Populi um, because there's no adverse party. So this is where, to take it to a further level on that question of of proxies providing safeguards and oversight, so the idea is the court needs to do that because you can't really have it be done by popular referendum, all these secret applications and so forth. Um, who watches the watchers? Right. Well, we actually have this body, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Now, well, wait, the first PCLOB. we have the intelligence committees. Well, we can do them whatever order. It doesn't matter. But but the one Remember that's, them? Yeah, the one that's really messed up. By the way, that's another race I'm watching tonight. What's that? Nunes, Nunes? Yeah. is it, I don't know the numbers. Is he expected to be uh, dislodged? Um, no, but if things go really badly, it could happen. Andrew yeah. Jans is the guy running against him. Well, perhaps the, I will say. Let's pause on this. I will say that if if the Dems retake the House, one of the most interesting and important things to Adam then Schiff. watch. Schiff becomes the uh, the ranking member or the, the chair, chair for. So with the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, it's supposed to be not chair and ranking member. It's chair and vice chair is the way it's supposed to be. How's that work? And and currently it's not working well at all. And it'll be very interesting to see if once in control of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, will, as, as I've heard might be the case, yeah. will Schiff lead a, a sort of a restoration of more of the bipartisan approach, or will it be tit for tat? I, I, I hope it's the restoration of the bipartisan approach. I agree. I think it's going to be very hard if the vice chair is Nunes. 
I agree with that okay. as well. All right. Um, so, so back to okay. 702. Okay. So the point I was trying to make is, yeah, they're, they're, look, we can enumerate a long list of yeah. the various proxies that watch the watchers. But here, the thing that really matters, I think, is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, the PCLOB, which can and sometimes has, when it's had a quorum, um, been able to function. It can play this really important role as a further layer of relatively independent right. individuals who are in a great position to actually get all the classified information and produce both classified and unclassified reporting to the public saying, look, this one's working pretty well. That one's not working so well. And, and in today's topic, Section 702, and then in a moment, Section 215, they've done just that. They've said that 702, in fact, is really valuable in terms of what it produces. They've expressed various concerns about how it could be improved, and a lot of those have been adopted since then, both by executive practice and by legislative amendment. They've, in contrast, panned Section 215, both for its relative lack of utility in actual practice in terms of the intelligence it generates, and they've criticized it on legal and other grounds. And I think they, in taking that differential approach, yeah. they created a ton of credibility for their institution. Well, and, and I think there's a lot to be said for that distinction. I mean, I'm not sure I agree with every iota of it, right? Sure. But um, to sort of get back to the question of what are the legal objections to 702, unlike the metadata, unlike the phone record metadata program, there's no dispute that PRISM and Upstream, as we understand them, are largely what Congress understood it was authorizing. Exactly. And, and when, uh, when Snowden later on begins revealing various things, there were many people who don't follow this area who said, oh my gosh, what's this PRISM and Upstream stuff? And for those of us who do work in this area, the answer is, uh, that's what all that 702 stuff well, the is thing about. Is, and, and the day after the FISA Amendments Act was enacted, it was it was challenged in court yeah. um, in the lawsuit that became the Supreme Court's February 2013 decision in Clapper versus Amnesty International on many of the grounds that subsequently became like, oh my gosh, how can right. they be doing this? So, right. In so, contrast to the 215 stuff, where as we'll it was say all, in a moment, that was quite a surprise. And, and I will say, and so, and so I actually think, especially when grading the FISA court's track record, I think the FISA court's track record is, is similar much better under 702 than it was under 215. Okay, so let's talk now about 702's key uh, sort of right. issues and the way that legislation so are, so, so I don't think there are, there are certainly technical, marginal statutory objections at the margins, right? That, you know, you can always find ways in which complex federal programs don't comply with every dot and yeah. jittle um, yeah. of a federal statute. But big overarching issues. I, I think the huge challenge to 702, besides the separation of powers issues we were just discussing, um, is a Fourth Amendment objection. And the Fourth Amendment objection, um, obviously, is not well taken by non-U.S. persons who, under Verdugo or Quides, don't have clearly established Fourth Amendment rights. So the big sensitive issue is when U.S. persons incidentally end up in the database of 702 collected communications. Does the Fourth Amendment, so one, does the Fourth Amendment apply to such incidental collection? Two, does it require a warrant? Three, um, if it doesn't require a warrant, is the collection nevertheless reasonable? Um, and this is a huge debate. Um, the, to my understanding, the only, the, the, no circuit level court has ever expressly decided this question in the context of 702. The FISA Court of Review basically said the predecessor to 702, the Protect America yeah. Act, was constitutional. But Bobby, that was early. And that was before we, I think we had a full understanding of just how much incidental collection there is under 702. Um, one of the things I think is an interesting debate in Fourth Amendment law is whether incidental collection applies when the government knows it's going to happen, 
right? So, so if the government, this is um, Judge Sand in the Bin Laden case in 2000 wrote about this, right? That incidental collection is usually analogous to the idea of accidental overhears. The government is already on a phone line, and it just so happens that even though they're tapping, you know, the pizza place, a mob boss uses the phone at the pizza place to plan some other crime. Right. Okay. Um, the government isn't necessarily tapping the mo- the government doesn't know that the mob boss is going to walk and order a slice and incriminate himself on this other wiretap. In the context of 702, there's at least an argument that the government is well aware that they're going to generate an awful lot of incidental collection, um, right? That the technology is such that it's not avoidable, and that that therefore makes it less accidental than the classic, you know, accidental overhear case. Yeah, I just I, I don't buy it. Um, and it's critical to emphasize the statute expressly forbids so-called reverse targeting, where the actual intent of the government is we really want to capture Steve Vladek's communications. We think we can get to him by targeting his his relative who lives overseas. So we'll, you know, do an air quote here. You know, we'll target the relative overseas. But our game is to capture Steve Vladek's communications. I mean, could could someone abuse the system and act illegally? Well, sure. That that's why we have the separate question of are there adequate safeguards to ensure compliance? But there's no question. Seven hundred two expressly forbids this. Um, sure. Um, I don't think, to my mind, I'm not sure that's sufficient, right? To, so on, the question is, in between reverse targeting and pure accidental overhears, is there a gray area where the government is not intentionally targeting specific U.S. persons, but is collecting non-U.S. person information with the knowledge that by collecting that non-U.S. person information, they are also going to come into possession of an awful lot of U.S. person data. Now, one reaction is you can you can mitigate that concern through so-called minimization requirements, which indeed they yeah they no, do right. Yeah. Um, and so and so then the question becomes right whether um, it's enough if you think there's a Fourth Amendment issue. Is it enough that there are minimization requirements? The minimization requirements have to meet some kind of um, constitutional minimum test to, to make it reasonable to make it reasonable yeah. right, I mean, right. Um, and importantly and this is actually one of the reforms that got proposed and then left out of the last reform um, 702 requires Bobby that a directive that directives come with minimization requirements 702 does not set out any statutory requirements for the content of those minimization requirements. It just requires that they exist. Right. And, and so let me let me kind of shift, because I was just criticizing the idea that this is a Fourth Amendment con- serious issue. There is a way in which this becomes a serious issue. I, I, don't th- I think the incidental collection, uh, I take a lot of comfort from the way the PCLOB has reviewed this. I, I, it's not some vast backdoor repository that's got all of our, our content in it. Um, there's some. But what's interesting is when after a collection occurs at stage two, where it's in the database, and then the possibility of the FBI coming along in a criminal investigative capacity expressly querying the database for U.S. person targets. Right. Now, that to me is a much harder and much more interesting question because it's very purposeful. It's, yep. it's, it's a fishing expedition. Hey, maybe Steve Vladek's in there. Let's, let's run his name through the database. This was a huge, I think, vulnerability that uh, presented a Fourth Amendment uh, vulnerability. The Congress in the uh, what was it? The FISA Amendments Reauthorization Act of 2017, which a while back on this show we reviewed, it tries to address this. And, I'm, and here's what it does. I'll be curious to see whether you think this is an adequate solution. Um, it used to be that, in theory, nothing prohibited the FBI from querying that database and running Steve Laddick's name through there. Right. Now the rule is that um, 
FBI must get a court order before doing a U.S. person query um, if they're not in foreign intelligence investigative mode. That is, you have a predicated criminal investigation. The default is you have to go get a warrant to query the database. So that that at first blush would seem to address the concern. If you're if you're really worried about the government backdooring somebody um, and circumventing the reverse targeting rule by just turning around a month later and just querying the database with the American's name, well, you can't do it without a warrant. So maybe problem solved. There are exceptions. Um, it's it's for example an exception if there's reasonable basis to believe there's a threat to life or limb. But that that seems kind of reasonable to me. Uh, are you satisfied that this makes the problem go away? No. Okay. Why not? Because um, I don't know how that exception is going to work in practice, right? The re- uh, a reasonable threat to life or limb based upon whose assessment, right? So mm-hmm. is that reviewable? You know, does the FBI just say we don't need a warrant because we've made our own determination that if we don't um, find this guy now, right, um, it could potentially you – know, the, the, the question is who is checking to make sure yeah. that there aren't pretexts? So we, we – re- this is, again, to come back to the P-Club. This is where the P-Club can – Play such now that important, it's now that it's great. right. This is why it was so important. You and I were both big advocates of bringing right. this back. So, whether your whether your concern is the liberties concern or the just the the proper and legitimate functioning of these important collection systems, having the PCLOB in place so it can it can look into this in a credible way and issue reports that either raise a red flag yep. or or give it a, give it a pass. Yeah, listen. So I, I want to be clear. I'm not nearly as bothered by 702 as I am by almost every other feature of, <laughs> of our modern foreign intelligence surveillance regime. Which, um, let's shift to this but, but just, just, just to sort of just to sort of get out of the subject in a hurry um, you talk about you know ensuring that there are mechanisms for for proper oversight and contestation right um, I would feel better about all of this if I had more faith that the government was being fully candid in those criminal cases in which it is using evidence derived from 702 and there's been a lot of controversy and there's been a lot that. of controversy over that um, Solicitor General Varelli had to apologize right about the time of the Snowden disclosures because as uh, he discovered after incorrectly answering a question at oral argument in the Clapper case. Ouch. Um, well, he didn't know. I mean, it wasn't right. his fault. But, you know, the Solicitor General's office and and the relevant lawyers at, I guess, what, um, DNI and NSA were not on the same page. Um, and so, you know, I'm... I would like to have faith that that problem has been fixed and that the government now actually is providing the statutorily and, to my mind, constitutionally mandated notices to criminal defendants. But given the track record under the first five years of the FISA Amendments Act, Bobby, I'm, I'm nervous. Sure. Well, I th- look, I think in general, an, an atmosphere of nervousness and skepticism yes. about trust is actually very healthy right. and, in this and, space. And it's the exact kind of thing that functioning intelligence committees could actually make me a lot less nervous right. about, right? It, because right. it would be easy for an intelligence committee to say, DOJ, you know, show me, you know, an intelligence committee could demand from DOJ in classified session a list of every single case where anything even indirectly derived from 702 had been used in the criminal trial. I think that the uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence is still healthy and functioning well. It's, it's the House Committee that's a mess. But it also just goes to show you that the the amount of beauties, I think it's too strong, but one of the pieces of wisdom in our system is there's that. It's got problems. We have inspectors general. They're not perfect, but we've yeah. got them too. PCLOB is a nice additional I could I couldn't agree more. But remember that when we started this whole conversation, we talked about the grand bargain. And I guess, you know, one of the things that I that I worry about and I want to sort of come back to before we, we wrap this episode is whether the grand bargain is still holding. Right. Well, no, it clearly came unstuck in yes. 2013 or was revealed to be unstuck All in right, 2013. All right. So why don't we use the metadata program to talk about Snowden? One last thing oh, on, on 702. Um, we mentioned about collection. It's important to, to close the loop on that one because this is pretty interesting. So as Steve mentioned, there was a technical 
uh, limitation on the ability to minimize overcollection when proceeding in the uh, upstream about capacity under 702. And there were questions about how much was was it worth the candle? How much utility was there in it? Eventually, the DNI uh, decided to pull back voluntarily on about collection, uh, stating publicly that there wasn't that much utility being gained by that mode of collection. And for the time being, they didn't yet have the technology to put an end to this or to sufficiently minimize the over collection. And so they said, we're for, until the technology improves or until the need changes, we're pulling back from this. So that was right when the, the, the Reauthorization Act was being debated. There was a big push to try to lock the door behind them and to say there's no coming back to about collection. And to, and to codify the uh, limited, uh, a prohibition on about collection. Right. And so what ended up happening was much more of a compromise. The door is not locked. Um, the government can reopen it and go back to resuming it. But in order to do so, it has to give 30 days notice to Congress of its intent to do so. And that, in turn, must include within the notice a copy of the what would have to be by then a Fisk ruling approving of the renewed procedure. So uh, basically, there's a timeline in, timeline in place where if the government wants to go back, if the Trump administration or any future administration wants to revive this, First, they got to go back through the, the FISA certification process under 702 and, and amend to include this capacity, get a FISA order approving of that application, then give 30 days notice, sharing that approval, 30 days notice to Congress. And I guess at that point, you know, all hell breaks loose and people start really focusing on this. And in the meantime, that door is currently closed. We are not doing about collection under 702. All right. Um, that's 702. That's in a nutshell. Where, yeah, that's where the TSP story and, and, comes and, to And just end. lastly on the litigation. So the Supreme Court in 2013, ironically, Bobby, three and a half months before Snowden comes along, and one wonders if, had that been reversed, the, the result would have been the same. Um, in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled in Clapper versus Amnesty International that a whole bunch of private organizations and private plaintiffs lacked Article Three standing to challenge the constitutionality of 702. Because right, they couldn't show that they were surveilled. They couldn't show or that they, they were, surveilled. were incidentally surveilled. They um, obviously weren't directly surveilled. Well, some of them were not, some of them were some of the plans were non-US persons. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. They um, also couldn't show it either. Well, they couldn't show a Fourth Amendment violation. Um, no, but, that too. Um, but um, litigation nevertheless continues on the subject because you now have in the Wikimedia Foundation versus NSA case, um, a case where the Fourth Circuit has held that Wikimedia actually does have standing in light of everything we now know about 702 collection, at least at the motion to dismiss stage, Clapper was summary judgment. Um, to proceed in their challenge to 702. And you also have a handful of criminal cases where there are at least collateral attacks on 702 in the context of motions to suppress. Those criminal cases seem like perfectly appropriate vehicles to raise the issue by definition. We've talked about that. that although, the, the, although the courts so far have largely punted. Like I think, you know, the circuit courts don't really want in the context of a criminal appeal to decide like massive questions of surveillance policy. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, not unlike Doe v. Mattis, which I found a way to work, work in here. Indeed. Right? Like not wanting to decide something that, that affects the overall legal architecture of the entire anti But all this is to say that the litigation landscape is not yet settled. Yeah. And so we may not be done talking about 702 if there are court rulings down the road that at least unshake some of its foundations. Well, so the reason I said it sounds right to use the crim cases as a vehicle is to contrast that with the civil cases where even if even if they can show standing, is there not a state secrets uh, privilege objection looming in the background to eventually derail those? There almost certainly is. I think the question is whether the, there's any way to litigate those cases without you know state secrets getting in the way. Yeah. Wouldn't I hold know. my breath. I, indeed. All right. So um, 
all of this nice, sophisticated technical discussion, I think, pales in contrast to the metadata program. The metadata stuff, this is, I, I'd say, I think we agree, much Bad. more controversial. <laughs> uh, I think we agree it's much more controversial. Uh, let's talk about what <laughs> what the bulk metadata story is. And ha how about this? The First, again, the high altitude. This is, this is what they were trying to do. This is how it's supposed to work. Okay, first. Who's the they in your sentence? They, the government, the Bush administration. The executive branch, not Congress. Because one of the things that happens is we get a disconnect between. No, I'm obviously talking about the the, okay. the, the NSA yeah, yeah. and the I'm Bush just, administration. I just, White want, House. I, just want, yeah. I just want to separate yeah, yeah. out the, the yeah, backers yeah, the, here. Okay, good. So let's talk about what metadata is in contrast to content. Metadata, to simplify things for our purposes, is the. Uh, the envelope information. Envelope, the to and from, where and when, the uh, the routing information, but most importantly, the who called who or who wrote to who, um, and at what time. But the the to from. So the idea was, sure, if you have uh, John Doe as your Al Qaeda suspected uh, member, who's your target? Obviously, you'd like to know who they're directly in contact with and and who's calling them as part of the investigation. It'd be a dereliction of investigative duty when you have a specific target not to figure out who they're in touch with. Um, what gets interesting is the much different and much more uh, controversial idea that it would also, from the investigator's viewpoint, be super interesting that whenever you do have such a target, what if you had the ability to go back to some utterly comprehensive, historically sweeping, all-encompassing record, a database of everybody who's in touch with everybody uh, and you could run a contact chain. So suddenly you learn about, hey, there's John Doe. Let's punch his contact information into that database, light up the database with all the chains of communication going out a certain number of hops. And there's a there's a strong geometric progression given how many different numbers call into any one number and how many different numbers you call out to from any one number. And once you go a couple of hops out, you've got this vast number of communications lit up in that contact chain. And the idea would be, what if you find somewhere in that chain that uh, two hops out, there's another suspected Al-Qaeda member, and suddenly the pathway between them becomes of special interest? Is that maybe a pair of additional or one additional person who's also someone you ought to be interested in? Contact chaining is the name of the game. This would only really work if it could possibly work at all. It would only work if you had a pretty comprehensive database. So the idea was to recognize that the telecommunication service providers for their own business and regulatory purposes, do in fact have each within their own systems uh, sort of mini haystacks of this kind of data. And so somebody at some point has the idea that what if we could have all that pulled in to NSA and create one overarching master database, and then whenever you have a uh, person of interest selector-wise, you could run that number through the contact chain and see what you find that's useful. I think it's important to say at the outset that PCLOB has concluded after looking at the fruits of using this approach over the years that it's had only limited utility in stark contrast to the way they come down on 702 as having great utility. And that the Second Circuit concluded that it was not consistent with the stat with the authority Congress authorized in Section 215 of the USA Patriot Right, but I was trying to predicate, <laughs> I was trying to start before we talk about the legal aspects. Uh, you're being a fan today. Um, really? Yeah. More than usual? Uh, no, I won't comment on that one. Okay. Um, so... It's, it is a different policy context within which we're looking at this. But, of course, we're here to talk about the legal aspects. And there's constitutional issues and there are statutory issues galore here. Um, the none, way, none of which yeah. we were privy to until Snowden came Right. On. So the way this comes about is similar to the terrorist surveillance program. It's a post-9-11 innovation where, again, the companies are being asked to cooperate voluntarily. Um, 
And they do so initially. Not everybody. There's less comprehensive cooperation from the private sector, but there's enough to get the program up and going. There, there are a lot of ins and outs to the story. We're not going to get into the nuances of how you know it turned out to be relatively difficult for email versus phone calls. This is this becomes primarily a phone call, a U.S. person phone metadata bulk story, right? Um, and then we're, we're, we're at various points. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're at, but at various points in litigation, the government represents that it was in fact collecting all metadata from at least many of the major cell phone providers. Well, it's trying to. That was yeah. the aspiration. The right. whole the whole idea is this only really works and you can only have faith in the contact chain. If it's complete. If it's it, The more complete it is, the more useful it is. And, and the metaphor that was often used is you have to have the haystack to find the needle. Exactly so, right. So the idea was it's a needle hunting. You, know, you identify somebody. You need to figure out who their confederates might be. Now that you've identified one suspect number, who else can you unveil that you don't know to look for? And you can't find it unless you already have the whole haystack. Exactly. So um, it, it exists for a number of years. Nobody outside uh, a very closely held group within the companies, NSA, and, and the, the FISA court. Well, not initially, right? Not so initially. Not initially. So way before there was Snowden, you had other leaks. And we talked about this in episode 98. There's a New York Times story. It was not, it was not about the bulk metadata. Right. If I recall correctly, actually, I think there was a USA Today story yep. around 2005 yep. that nobody really credited, yep. but totally sounds like a, a, yep. a possible description of this. Yep. Either way, even if it was only the indirect light from the terrorist surveillance and then, program. And then there's Ron Wyden. Well, okay, we'll get to him. Yeah. Um, even if it's just the indirect light from the New York Times story about what is the terrorist surveillance program, the larger blow up with all this coming into the light makes it impossible for the companies to keep cooperating without clearly foreseeing this is going to be a harm to their their competitiveness. Shareholders are going to sue, that sort of thing. So they can't, at a certain point, they can't keep the bulk metadata flow going unless they get a court order. That's when they go, the public's still not right. knowing about this. That's when they go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court trying to find a way to get approval. Now, we should mention, what about the Fourth Amendment? Never mind whether a court says a statute <laughs> allows it. So the theory there it is prior to the Carpenter decision of several months ago right, this, this year. June. Right. So back under pre-Carpenter case law, it was well settled since the 70s that especially non-content from non-content information that is in the hands of a third party. Smith v. Maryland, U.S. v. Miller, it was well settled that third-party doctrine governed that, and the Fourth Amendment didn't protect it. There were loads of academics writing articles all along saying this is a terrible rule, it ought to change. U.S. v. Jones, um, 2012. 2012, long after these events we're talking about, would begin to foreshadow the change that begins to materialize in Carpenter. But... It was pretty clearly settled before Jones. So I would absolutely. So, so in, until I am with you a thousand percent until Jones, right? That but, the third party doc and, and the idea was, you know, when I when Verizon has a list of all my phone calls, right? I have voluntarily agreed to provide Verizon with my with my metadata by contracting with Verizon to provide me cell phone service. Right, and it's always been it's always been pretty silly. And you know, Thurgood Marshall and Dissent and Smith v. Maryland said this this isn't voluntary. It's a, you know, there's no voluntariness in that. You have to have a phone. Right. No, 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 no one's negotiating their cell phone contract. Like you know, yeah. well, and, you, hey, and, you Verizon, can't, right. and you can't opt out of having a phone. Right. Hey Verizon, tell you what, I will I will pay you more money if you don't keep my records. It doesn't work that way. Right, right, right. And again, like, could you go off grid? Well, yeah, but you can't function fairly in society without it. So it's always been criticized. 
sizable, but it was pretty well settled. So until this, Jones. Until Jones. But that's much after the you events know, we're talking I, about. I understand that, right? I, so, so I first of all, I think the, the larger objection was always the statutory one, right? Yep. But second, part of the exasperation, you know, Snowden's disclosures come at a fascinating moment doctrinally and not just politically. That's for sure. And I completely, I think we're on the entire same page about that. So, the, the idea that the Fourth Amendment would always allow this, Clearly not tenable, and it hasn't proved tenable. All right, so um, so what? So the government goes to the FISA court. It gets a couple of cryptic approvals, right? right? Under under what authority? So Section two fifteen of the USA Patriot Act, Bobby. There, there you, you go. go. Uh, right, fifty USC eighteen sixty one. I actually think it's technically Section what. Uh, 501 of FISA, but no one calls it that. Right, right. It's always called 215. Or um, Is this related to our friends at the librarians? Yes, this is, so the, this if, is the library records provision. Right. So a lot of people remember, there's, there's waves of narrative, right, yes. in national security law. Yes. And back in 2001, when the Patriot Act was, was being enacted. debated and yeah. enacted, um, one of the major things, there was, you know, the Patriot Act has like a billion provisions, most of which are uninteresting and uncontroversial. Um, there's a there's a litany of depending on how you count them between you know five and seven or so uh, major points of controversy and one was always described as the library right. provision because, because it was librarians that got mad right. and the, and the theory was if you go to the library and ask them for the records of what books people had checked out right and of course it turns out that that wasn't actually that's what like happened. that's not even the issue <laughs> right. Um, so what happens is the government at some point goes to the FISA court and argue. what well, 215 basically says that the government, if it can show that the records are, quote, relevant, unquote, to an ongoing counterterrorism investigation, can go to the FISA court and ask for basically, it's not a subpoena, but it's an order. It's a production right. order. It works a lot like a subpoena. So if the grand jury needs to get documents from the bank, it issues a subpoena. Right. The bank turns over the records. Um, th by the way, a subpoena, you're not going to the court. Um, here you do go to the court you just a, like you, you would with you a, a, and you got a production order right you get a production order but it, it's it's functionally a a lightly judicially approved based on a relevant standard uh, production order and if the the traditional model the one that all of us thought this worked like was all right we've identified some guy Steve Vladek right. possible al Qaeda member um, we need to get his or records take, with take, take the marathon bombings right the boss marathon bombings oh, right? good one yeah we, we've identified two suspects. Right, the Sarnayev brothers. Okay. Right, we want to find, we want the records of every single um, home goods store in and around Boston to see if they sold them pressure cookers. Exactly. So, so you go, you go there. You've got a particular target. There's perfectly clear logic that that information that that Home Depot is may have is clearly relevant yeah. to the investigation. Exactly. Right? So there and, you go. And, and you want to know if they bought more than two. Right. So the theory of using so somebody, somebody within the government had yeah. the bright idea somebody. that we could maybe go to the FISA court and say, hey. The bulk metadata haystack we're gathering, we're not doing it for the fun of it. We're doing it to further terrorism investigations. The logic of it is, as described earlier, to get it all in advance and sit there untouched until we need to contact chain with a then relevant person's number. So maybe we could convince you, FISA that, court, that, that, that the, the whole, whole haystack thing. is relevant. Exactly. So it's a it's a narrow and unexpected way. There's a, there's obviously a logic to it. It's, it's not, not the it's, logic we all thought it, was at work. It's not frivolous. No, it's not frivolous. Right. But it's 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 a simultaneously true that there is a relevance in that special sense. But it's not obvious that that's the relevance anyone thought they were enacting when they created this authority in the Patriot Act. And indeed, the first 
the first um, detailed opinion from the FISA court analyzing whether this is legal doesn't come out till after Snowden, uh, right? Like, it, not just isn't released till after Snowden, isn't, isn't filed. Until, up until that point, all that you got were these summary orders with right. no analysis. It was implicit that the court, I mean, it was more than implicit. It was explicit that the court found the relevant of standard it, of course it was. satisfied, but it didn't explain why this was okay. All right, um, so a long yeah. cut, so, so let's fast forward to Snowden. Yeah, so, so a the, long cut, so June 2013, right? A, a day that will live in infamy. Uh, June fifth, twenty thirteen. Certainly, in some respects. So, so there are whole, so Snowden discloses a whole bunch of things, right? And yep. and a lot of them are not the scandals that they're made out right. to be. The one thing that's both actually surprising to people on the outside who follow this, like us, and clearly worthy of intense public engagement, I would say, is the revelation that two fifteen was being interpreted by the FISA court and the meta- government for bulk metadata collection. To, al- to be relevant even on this bulk model. So, so I, I, I will quibble with the one thing and just say clearly the the biggest thing, yeah, right? Like fair enough. Um, right, that that by far to me the bombshell was bulk telephone tele- telephony metadata, um, and what happened. And, and indeed, it's the tele. Ironically, um, it is the telephone metadata that sets off the scandal, right? And that actually impels Congress to do something that really pushes for reforms. Um, And there are two different sort of paths of reform, right? One is how do we reform the underlying substantive authority to make clear that no, this is we're we're not authorizing this degree of this degree of indirect connection. And two, how do we reform the process? Because clearly, the process did not work in this case to catch the, in our view, incorrect and deeply disturbing interpretation of the statute. So let's focus in that order then on uh, what becomes of it. One possibility is that the very idea of contact chaining through bulk haystacks would be abandoned as just too intrusive. Yep. That's n- So what I think is fascinating about this yeah. is I think a lot of people think, so that's what happened. We got rid of it. No. I don't think it's what happened at all. No. I think that a lot of people said, oh, bad, bad, bad. But it's kind of, we want to keep it around in another version that's different enough to where we can say that was bad, but what we're doing is good. And I question whether it's really that different. Okay, but so so I think for both pieces of this conversation, for the substantive and the process hook, we have to talk about the two very different reform bills. Um, so there's a little bit of political histo- history here, which is throughout the summer of 2014, which is when the, the reform conversation with Bobby, I think, was at its, at its apex. Um, there was a lot of back and forth between Congress and the Obama administration over a compromise bill, um, right, over something that the Obama administration could live with, but that would be a real step forward with regard to constraining authorities and improving process. Um, and this becomes known, Bobby, informally as the Leahy Bill, okay. right, because they, they were all called the USA Freedom Act. Right. Um, but the bill that I think was by far the most well-received on the part of privacy and civil liberties groups was what's known as the Leahy Bill, um, which Senator Leahy and his colleagues sort of spend all summer hammering out. Um, and the Leahy Bill um, gets to a cloture vote um, on the night of um, November 18th, 2014, and loses the cloture vote 58 to 42. Um, in other words, 58 senators voted to invoke cloture. So it was two votes short. So it was filibustered away with a narrow narrow minority maintaining the filibuster and, and or the, the implicit threat of a filibuster. And although it was a two-vote margin, the second vote was superfluous. The vote that counted was Rand Paul, 
Um, and Rand Paul filibustered it not because he objected to the reforms, but because he didn't think they went far enough, which to me is one of the greatest examples of the perfect being the enemy of the good. But if he'd flipped, wouldn't it have just been 59? No, because the other guy who voted for cloture, I think it was Senator Johnson, I took go back and check, um, was on record as saying he wouldn't have been the difference. Um, It's easy to say when you don't actually get called on it. But the narrative at the time was that it was all was that Rand Paul's vote sunk the Leahy bill. Interesting. So sort of letting the best be the enemy of the good from the libertarian or or civil liberties. Right. Because because and and the irony was that what we got instead, a bill that Senator Paul, by the way, ends up voting for um, is the much watered down version that the House ends up getting through. Is Is it clear Obama would have gone along with the Leahy bill? I mean, the, and, or that, or that the House would have gone. So along that's with the better it. question. So the, the 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 White House was, um, I think it's safe to say, not enthusiastic about the Leahy bill, but that it had been a, that the the principal sort of stakeholder in the in Leahy's negotiations had been the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, so the House is the bigger obstacle. The House was the obstacle. I, you know, I think if it had gotten through the Senate, and if Obama was pushing it. You know, I, I, I think it would have been a close call, but I think it gets through. So how is it fundamentally different from what ultimately did get enacted as the USA Freedom Act? So the two the two biggest differences are, one, um, it would have just about done away, um, right? The, the version of what's now in place for metadata collection um, is somewhere in between um, no metadata collection and what this bill, right? Like this would have been even, even, close, even closer to the no collection scenario. Interesting. Um, I think that's actually less important. There were really important procedural reforms in the Leahy bill that got watered down to a fairly well in the House bill. Um, so, for example, one of the things that I was one of the real champions of at the time was the need for more adverseness in the FISA court, shocking given our conversations, um, and the idea that there ought to be something called a special advocate, um, a sort of standing lawyer who was part of the FISA court, whose job was to basically provide arguments adverse to the arguments being offered by the government in cases where there was no adverse party. Would that be across the board in all FISA settings at all times or just in certain subsets? So I got into a series of very long, drawn-out fights with Judge Bates over the summer of 2014 about this. Um, The idea was actually never to have a special advocate for classic Title I FISA warrants. Okay. And that Right, the agent of a foreign power factual showing. Because that's just, you know, that's not where the problem had arisen. But that in in the 215 and 702 cases, right, in the context in which you actually had the FISA court doing things that weren't adverse in the classical Article Three sense, and in the context in which there were concerns that the FISA court wasn't getting enough outside briefing, um, that was where you needed this outside outside interval, uh, involvement. So we do have a version of this, don't we? Right. As so, things ultimately settled out, how, what do we have, and how is it different from what you were hoping for? So what ended up in the what ended up coming through the House version that passed the following June um, was uh, a special advocate who is an amicus. Um, Mm -hmm. And the statute basically says that the special advocate can be appointed by the FISA judge unless he or she certifies in writing um, that the appointment's unnecessary. Now, from my perspective, if your concern is that there are arguments the judges won't know to make for themselves, which is what we saw with some of the 215 Mm -hmm. opinions, right? So so part of what this is a reaction to is when we finally did get opinions defending the 215 program, their analysis was, suffice it to say, um, incomplete. and they were missing some of the most obvious counterarguments. So the idea was have someone who has to be there, right? That, you yeah. know, it was already, 
the, the what's available today, right? The special advocate under the under the USA Freedom Act was already available before any of this. Nothing would have stopped the FISA court from asking anybody to come participate as an amicus. So now all you have is a formalized procedure for preserving the status quo. But it's not been meaningless because whereas before they never did it, now they do it often, but not always. Right. They don't have to always do no, it. No, but, but but they don't even but no, but my but my problem is is that, you know, there are FISA judges who are more hostile to this. Right. And part of the purpose was to take this out of their hands. I agree. So this may or may not surprise you. I completely agree with the utility of having a special advocate on legal interpretation questions. Yeah, not fact. Only. Right. Yeah. Um then the other piece of this that I that I was a big fan of is um the Leahy Bill would have also provided a presumption in favor of publication of FISA court opinions. Uh, as of right now, right, there's no such presumption, and indeed they're generally classified. Would it have been limited to the legal interpretations again? Well, no, mean, no, no, it would have been, I mean, the, the whole, so the presumption is publication, and then the burden is on the court and or the government yeah. to redact those parts of the opinion. So as opposed to now, where it's like, you know, the opinions just sit out there right. and no one sees them, um, the, the presumption would have been published with redactions unless it's impossible to do yeah. so. I mean, one of the, we talked about this before, that one of the great abiding mysteries is what does the vast secret body of FISA court right. common law look like. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so we're not in disagreement on that. Uh, going back to what actually became of the bulk metadata program. So is the following a fair description? Um, basically, whereas before you, the status quo originally was each company has the potential to do contact chaining only within their own network universe. And NSA wanted to pull it all in-house at Fort Meade or wherever and have the Utah. one – Yeah, maybe in Utah and have the one mega stack. What we've got now is sort of this hybrid where the stack – the content, the bulk content never comes out to NSA. It stays with the companies. But it's clearer than ever before that they do have to not only maintain these stacks themselves within their own networks, but when NSA pings them and says, all right, we've got the yeah. following selector – um, we would like to contact chain it within the, the statutory rules, two hops. Yep. So the persons they called or called them, and then one further round from there for those right. As contacts. As opposed to, what was it, six? Uh, I forget what the original yeah. was. So a narrow one. And then you got to do it on a disaggregated basis. And then NSA takes the feedback from each of those disaggregated uh, mini chains yep. and then tries to pull it all together. Um, clearly less efficient, more cumbersome, more, more likely to have issues. Uh, some argued that NSA is actually better off because it's clearer than before that everybody's got to play ball when they do this, uh, and that though it's more inefficient and cumbersome, they may have they may actually have a better overall picture, though limited to only two hops, which is sort of a, a roadmap for how many cutouts you need if you want to keep your communications secure. And it's on far firmer statutory footing. I mean, I think there's right that's that's yeah, just no the legitimacy here. of it because no right. one talks about it anymore. That's right. Uh, uh, now, let, now both 702 and, and the revised 215 still have sunsets, right? So Congress, in theory, will have to revisit these eventually, but. Congress has not shown. Yeah, I think we have. I, I could be wrong. I think we have till twenty twenty one for the next seven hundred two renewal, yeah. and then and like twenty twenty four maybe. I, anyway, I don't know about twenty fifteen. Um, I have to look that but, up. But so so with regard to what what sort of case law this all generated. So um, there are a whole bunch of lawsuits surrounding two fifteen before it's amended, before it's revised by Congress. Um, the Second Circuit in ACLU versus Clapper holds that two fifty that the bulk telephone metadata collection was a violation of 215, that it exceeded 
the statutory authority. It was a misread of the statute misread to construe it to apply generally. Um, and actually, there's a really good concurrence by Judge Sack about the importance of— For him I clerked. Indeed. I, I figured you Along with that. Judge Kaplan, but Judge Sack too. Um, so the Sack and the Sack concurrence, as you know, makes a big deal out of the importance of adverse you know, presentation of arguments in this context and sort of suggests that part of why these interpretations may not have ever been adequately challenged is because there was no one with the right incentive to stand up and say, what about these arguments? So in the Second Circuit, it gets struck down on— statutory grounds. In the D.C. District Court, in Clayman versus Obama, um, Judge Leon strikes it down on Fourth Amendment grounds. Um, right. He anticipates not just – he goes way beyond where even Carpenter has yet gone and basically says, look, Smith v. Maryland, the, the rule of the third-party doctrine is incompatible with the efficiency gains that mass digital yep. uh, compilations of data enables. Um, it, it's a – it's a fascinating opinion. If I recall correctly, it has more than a few exclamation marks in oh, it's, 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 it. It's, it's, it's a Judge colorful Leon, opinion. It's Judge Leon being Judge Leon. Um, and in a case but there was another district plaintiff. judge who in this uh, – was it the Southern District of New York, Judge Pauly perhaps? Yes, who came out the other way. Who came out the other way. Right. So, so he had – dueling the, opinions. Well, but it was the Second Circuit that reversed Judge Pauly, mm-hmm. right, in, in ACLU versus Clapper. Right. Um, the D.C. Circuit, by the time it finally gets to the merits of the appeal and claim in, you've had the intervening enactment of – the USA Freedom Act, and so the DC Circuit dismisses yeah. the appeal as moot, but not before then Judge Kavanaugh writes a concurrence saying why he thinks Judge Leon is wrong, citing the uh, Smith v. Maryland standard as having well settled the so third-party so, doctrine. So, but so, right. during his confirmation hearing, he was asked about this and actually spoke also with Leahy in yep. his chambers, according to Leahy, where he made clear to say, "Look, that was me as a, as a circuit, circuit judge, judge bound, bound by, by precedent, precedent. Totally. and that was pre-Carpenter." Listen, we've talked before about how Carpenter could upset the whole apple cart here, absolutely. Um, and at least with regard to metadata collection, targeted metadata collection of U.S. persons, um, there is an open question, especially after Carpenter. Yeah, Carpenter says seven days worth of history of people's movements tracked by cell site locator information in as to one particular guy uh, in a criminal investigation, that that actually implicated the Fourth Amendment. And so you couldn't invoke third-party doctrine anymore to avoid that argument. It does look like the uh, remaining or the legacy or what do we say the USA Freedom Act bulk metadata uh, distributed contact chaining program may be vulnerable to this kind of challenge in which case we will finally get a new case asking the further question then is there nonetheless a foreign intelligence exception to all of this never right, so, mind so, the third so let's party put this out so imagine the government gets a production order under new 250 under new 215 right right um, no question unlike under the old program, no question the statute authorizes what's going on. Yep. Right. So then the question would be: Does this does this implicate the Fourth Amendment? Do we have an expectation of privacy yeah. in the metadata after Carpenter? As you say, the answer may very well be yes. Right. At which point we do get to the question we started with in the very first episode: foreign intelligence exception. Right. It's still a question, y'all. Is there a foreign intelligence? So so it's actually two questions, right? Is there, in the abstract, a, a foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment? And if so, yeah. does the exception require that the government's search have as its primary purpose the collection of foreign intelligence information as opposed to uh, law enforcement? Exactly so. And so the interesting question is, can the is this ever actually going to get litigated in the bulk metadata context under the Freedom Act? The companies could yep. make a stink about this. Yep. As far as I know, they haven't. But presumably some company at some point post-Carpenter might say, well, I think we're going to raise a Carpenter objection to this. Really? What's the, what's their interest for doing so? I don't know. Yahoo resisted before. Some of these They were the only one. 
and yet they did. Well, but uh, they right. they were kudos, a big company right. and they decided kudos, to do it. Kudos to Yahoo. Yeah. But but well, and there are a lot of other players out there. If this, there are plenty of communication service providers that are smaller and have more of an ideological orientation to what they do. So absolutely, one of them none, might get none, a directive none or might who, get none of whom ever stood up under the old two fifteen or seven hundred two. Uh, actually, I'm not 100 percent sure that's right about some of the smaller providers. As of twenty, okay, as of July 2013. Um, then FISA court presiding judge Reggie Walton wrote to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees that he was unaware of a uh, under either 215 or 702. So Yahoo was under the pre 702 yeah, yeah. FAA. He was unaware of a single adverse party having ever availed itself of the. No, right but I'm to talking appear. about you know. So it's five years later. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm saying that it, I would yeah. not be surprised to learn that there's been some instances. All, all of which is to say, right? So we've we've had in the intervening co- last couple of months, we finally had the third opinion by the FISA court of review. Although that was in the context of whether the ACLU has standing to pursue disclosure of hitherto classified FISA opinions, court opinions. Right. Again, transparency issues. Back to the Leahy bill, right? right and right. That, that wouldn't have been an issue if the right. Leahy bill had gone through. Um, but I, I think, Bobby, I think I, I, I take if, if what I hear you saying is we are probably heading for if we don't already have a major fourth substantive ruling by the FISA court of review, right? I think that's right. That's and I right. Think, and, I, and I think just to put this out there, it's long past time for the Supreme Court to take a FISA case um, and to find the right FISA case to actually say, for better or for worse, like, do we think this regime is consistent with our understanding of the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, they, they never have before. I know. I, I want to mention as we get towards the close That, that hasn't stopped them. No. I, what we're talking about, this entire three-episode arc, no other country with a similar legal yeah. system goes anywhere near this far. Where you have this yeah. much role for the courts, where you have this much sort of interaction among the branches of government. Now, of course, in a parliamentary system, right, there are different checks and balances. Um, yeah, but but yet, whatever one thinks of our system, we've gone farther <laughs> in a protective direction. Now, whatever shortfalls there still may be, right. Car- so it, we're miles ahead of everybody else. When all this went down in the summer of 2013, I got into a fight with Carrie Cordero because she called FISA the most in- the most um, what was it oversight laden foreign intelligence activity in the history of the planet. Sounds um, right. <laughs> Great. The, and, and that and two dollars and seventy five cents will get you on the subway. Yeah, it's um, always, always useful to have the comparative law perspective. But but. <laughs> <laughs> when you're using it the way a drunk uses a lamppost, right, for support rather than illumination. Uh, um, that, are you saying that's what's <laughs> happening here? Not, not you. Never, so, no, but, no. But here's, I think, where we should leave this, right? We started this whole conversation by framing FISA as this grand bargain, as the three branches in a, I think, you know, quibble with the margins, but in a fascinating, I think, positive act of interbranch dialogue and coordination and compromise. The three branches hammering out this sort of sophisticated, multi-part, you know, framework to govern foreign intelligence surveillance within the United States. Um, my own reaction to the Snowden disclosure, which I know differs in some ways from yours, um, is that the most important lesson from Snowden's disclosures had nothing to do with any of the specific authorities he was disclosing and everything to do with the sense that the compromise had broken down. Um, that the FISA court had not necessarily been the protector of, you know, civil liberties that I think some of the original drafters had intended, that the intelligence committees had largely been captured by the intelligence community and were not necessarily involved in anything other than politically motivated as opposed to, you know, liberty, civil liberties motivated oversight, Um, and that the result was a drift in power toward the executive branch. So I, I don't mo- I mostly don't quibble with that, although maybe I don't accept quite the political characterization sure. on the oversight process. But I think the interesting question then becomes I, I agree with the thesis that the 
disruptive effect of ongoing technological change and the weakening of of congressional oversight combined to disrupt the, the or, or not the weakening the sort of the partisanization of yeah it. exactly completely agree with that um, so then the question becomes so have we now since 2013 over this five year arc have right. we seen what amounts to a new 1978 and I would argue that we don't know yet whether it's going to stick but we've we've got that so the pieces of it are um, the FISA Amendments Reauthorization Act the USA Freedom Act which respectively modify constrain but ultimately sustain key elements of both 702 collection mm-hmm. and bulk metadata contact chaining they're yep. both there in certain ways so sort of the top of the bulk yeah. metadata contact and chain. they don't yeah. go as far as you wanted as the Leahy Act wanted on improving adversariality and doing the critical thing which I completely am on board with by the way of improving adversariality as to the tricky Fourth Amendment and statutory interpretive questions that the FISA court, in fact, confronts because of evolving technology. Um, I I think we've got what's in – that combined with some executive branch reforms, a variety of things, some stuff Obama did, creates what could be the new equilibrium. It seems actually to be sustaining so far. These issues are no longer front-page issues except at the moments of statutory renewal. But Congress, you know, under Obama – and now under Trump, under both administrations, has been renewing these things with tweaks here and there. So I think we're now currently in a fine-tuning stage and no longer in a, this is a total disaster. How do we go forward? Will we allow the NSA and the FBI to keep doing this? There are still obviously issues to be ironed out. But on the whole, we seem to have settled into a place where the the debates have become narrower and more targeted. And so I'd say we're pretty much at the new post-Snowden equilibrium right now. So I think, I mean, I think it's hard to know if that's because things have equalized or because things are just happening behind the scenes. Or we only talk about Trump and therefore we don't talk about these other well, issues but, I mean, anymore. But, no, but hold on a second. But, I mean, I do think before we go, it's relevant to talk about how FISA has become part of the Trump narrative, right? Which is in none of the ways in which you and I think it's even remotely controversial today. You mean the way that Trump tried to invoke claims of uh, Obama spying on his and, campaign? And abusing that, FISA and all this other stuff, right? Which, that, which tends to flip the narrative about whose side are critics of the government on, no, I guess. No, I, but, but right. So, so all this is just to say that I, I certainly agree that Congress has been active in this space. And that if we're going back to Youngstown land, right, that there isn't sort of a, 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 a an area where the president's just act, unlike the war powers, right, where, where Congress keeps abdicating its authority to the executive branch, right? Here, Congress is mostly Definitely. acquiescing um, in what the, or acquiescing. I don't, I don't think the, the Freedom Act can be described as acquiescing. I mean, they, they, I, 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 so I disagree. Okay, well, how about this? Congress is authorizing um, at least some degree of what, the, uh, right, the, yeah. um, I guess I'm, I, I remain unconvinced that the FISA court has learned the right lessons from the Snowden affair um, and that the intelligence committees are going to survive the current moment um, and be able to reassert themselves as sort of nonpartisan or at least bipartisan um, checks on intelligence abuses in sort of nonpartisan contexts. But, but I will concede that that is just a fear on my part um, right, that is wanting at the moment for evidence. Sure. And, and, and so, as is often the case, so much of this comes back to our, our priors who and our instincts trust? about who you trust. That's right. And, and, and what's your sense of comfort with the multi-layers of uh, would-be transparency and accountability yep. mechanisms? Totally. Yep. All right. So I think we, 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 that we, 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 we've hit the bottom of our deep dive. We're, we're at crush depth. Did we? <laughs> exactly. What's that, that popping sound in the hole? What? Did, <laughs> good Lord. 
did we have That's some frivolity? Did we have some frivolity that we had to time I mean, to close maybe, with? Maybe, but we're an hour and twenty one minutes. Oh yeah, no. Okay, that, <laughs> I think we've been frivolous enough. And besides, we got to pack our bags and get to Washington. It's not going to take us seven days. It might take me seven days. I, you're making me take the equipment. You volunteered to take. I the did equipment. volunteer to take the equipment. All right, I will Before try not I to lose even... it. Yeah, you know, if you lose the equipment, fortunately, I know who has to replace it. I'm you. picturing this scene at uh, you know Reagan Airport where I'm not minding my bag, and some you know somebody comes by and grabs it, takes off running. Like never actually happens, but you, you mean know, National Airport? Uh, is not called Reagan. What do you call the Baltimore Airport? Thurgood Marshall. Oh, okay, fine. All right, you win. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. so 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 I, I I I am I am an old DC Democrat, right? So I did okay. the thing where people like I lived there before it was Reagan Airport. Uh, so it's, it's national. It's national. And people I, say, I call the lake say, here Town Lake, not Lady Bird Lake, because that's what I'm used to. And, and people say, well, is there you know, it's Ronald Reagan Airport. I say, oh, what do you call the Baltimore Airport? They say BWI. BWI. I say, well, tell you what, when you call it Thurgood Marshall Airport, I'll, I'll call National Reagan. I'll call it. I'll call. So I'll compromise and call it DCA. So when I'm at DCA, the uh, somebody steals the bag with our stuff, and I'm gonna go charging after going. That guy's stealing the National Security Law podcast. And the whole crowd just turns on him because that is going to fire people everyone up. Everyone will know. Everyone it, will know. It, you know, we might be divided as a country, but the one thing on which we're all unified is the importance of the National Security Law podcast. I can't top that. Happy Election Day, everybody. Stay safe out there. Adios.